Kia and welcome to Deloitte New Zealand's State of the State podcast series. I'm David Lovett, Deloitte's Public Sector Lead, based in Wellington. In this short podcast series, we're taking a deeper look at well-being in New Zealand as part of our 2018 State of the State Thought Leadership Articles. Each episode features our article authors and guests from across the public sector, discussing why well-being is a hot topic right now, why it's important, and how we foster it for the benefit of all Kiwis. In this episode, I'm joined by article author and Deloitte Access Economics lead, Linda Mead, and Professor Philip Morrison from Victoria University of Wellington. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. We're going to be talking about Article 8 in the series, The Importance of Place, a Cities and Regions View of Wellbeing. In it, Linda examines the importance of taking a regional wellbeing view, the disparities in wellbeing across and within the regions themselves, and possible next steps to improving regional wellbeing. You can read the whole article at deloitte.com forward slash nz forward slash state of the state. So Linda, why does regional wellbeing matter? Why can't we just focus on the nation as a whole? Well, I think as I said in the article, where people live does matter to their wellbeing. Uh, and that is the focus of the series, of course, wellbeing. So, you know, making a local region a better place to live is pretty important for people's lives. Um, and that's, that's what we're really focused on here, people's lives. Um, and so if we think about the divergences in wellbeing and, amongst the population, I think it's very, you know, sorry, it seems obvious to, to me that there are uh, divergences in wellbeing at a local level matter. Um, and I think the other thing that you can think about as well is all of the, the bigger trends that are happening in the environment. Um, so trends around urbanisation, for example, ageing population, um, the importance of the environment, all of these things happen at a national level, but they also are quite uh, happening at a local level and in often in quite different ways. Um, and those are things that we really need to, to focus on and think about. And, and Philip, what, what do we know about regional well-being in New Zealand? Are, are there differences between the different factors that contribute to well-being and how those play out in, in different regions? We don't know a great deal about well-being. We know an increasing amount about income, individual incomes in particular. And one of the things we've learned over the last decade or so is that while there are regional differences in average income, they have not, they have grown a little bit, those differences, but the real change has been the difference in incomes between, within regions rather. So it's the within region disparity that's occurring um, that is new. And what's interesting about that is that this is also true of many other developed economies. So, whether this is also true of well-being is something that really needs to be investigated because there's no simple one-to-one -one correspondence between well-being and income. So that really is a question for future research. Um, the, the little bit of work that has been done on regional well-being does show that there are disparities in well-being. And one of the interesting areas that uh, me and some colleagues overseas have been working on is the way in which uh, well-being tends to be lower in, in very large cities on average. So we're exploring reasons for that. 
So, so a couple of things there, uh, which sound you know, almost counterintuitive to me. Firstly, that uh, while there might be differences in income between regions, it may actually be the disparities that exist within regions that that are more significant or certainly very mm -hmm. significant. So that was one thing. But then also, you know, I think cities, I think, you know, cities are often very wealthy places and yet actually well-being may be lower in those cities, you know, in inverse relationship mm -hmm. to the higher average incomes. Yes, I think in both income and well-being, we've got to recognise that they are distributions and they're not symmetric distributions, they are skewed distributions. In the income case, they're positively skewed. In the well-being case, they're negatively skewed. Um, and that skewness, that inequality, is greatest in, in, in the bigger cities. So you have a lot of rich people, wealthy people in cities. You also have some of the very poorest. And um, the reasons for that are, are interesting and worth talking about, <laughs> either now or later. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot going on behind the averages that we see. Uh, absolutely, and I think there's one thing I've become aware of over the over the years of working on this, is that focusing on the average can be grossly misleading. Average, any given average, can result be the result of uh, a whole variety of different distributions. And if we're talking about inequality, we've got to look at those distributions, and the way they manifest. Is it other big chunks of people right at the bottom and then the rest of the people in the middle? Or is it a more gradated uh, uh, distribution or what? So how income is manifest is actually quite important in terms of reacting to it. Mm. Uh, income and well-being. Oh, one of the things that I'm curious about is how this has changed over time. I think you've touched on this. You know, what's interesting things that have been happening over time and, the, and in particular just sort of thinking about the evolution of New Zealand's regions over time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and obviously it depends a little bit on how far back in time you go. But um, I'm working on a project at the moment that focuses on Northland, just as an example. Mm -hmm. And if you, obviously if you go back quite a long way in time, Northland was the centre of everything in New Zealand, really. You know, it was the first capital... Um, and yet now it's, despite its proximity to Auckland, which you would think would give it a significant advantage, that doesn't seem to be reflected. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question and a very interesting question. It points to something that's going on worldwide, and that is uh, far from place becoming less important as a result of telecommunications. Mm -hmm. The people who argued that the world is becoming flat. Um, quite the reverse has become the case. We've, the economies of agglomeration have just continued to be manifest. Um, growth is a function of proximity to a much higher degree in a service economy and then uh, people appreciate it. So the more that service economy grows, the more face-to-face -face interaction becomes important, the more people need to talk to each other face-to-face -face, and uh, that, that leads to competition for inner city sites and inner city living. There's, a, there's a, a corresponding change too in that as incomes rise as a result of this growth of the tertiary sector, so our demand for services, personal services, rises. So we go to gyms, we get people to look after our children, we get more taxis and things like that. And a lot of those services we command are actually low income services. So at the same time as wealth is increasing as a result of the service economy growing and places growing, we're bringing more and more low-income people into the city. And this is one of the reasons why the inequalities of big cities is growing. 
and why, why are we seeing the inequality growing mm -hmm. within regions rather than between regions. The between regions is influenced by demography um, probably more than the uh, within. You're getting a, a movement of young people, employed people out of the what we call the regions or the provinces mm -hmm. into the big cities and leaving an aging population and a diminishing population. Mm -hmm. And so we we are we're getting that increase in so the between as well. So what's driving? Do you think that particularly things like health disparities in some of those um, areas away from the bigger urban centres? Um, health disparities within the the, the the regions. Well, I suppose between the regions is mm. what I'm thinking of more here. I mean, if you think of so OECD data seems to suggest that um, New Zealand has some of the larger disparities between regions in some certain areas, and health being one of those. Yes, I think the, 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 one of the difficulties in thinking about New Zealand compared to other countries is that there's a very strong correlation between ethnicity and health. For a couple of reasons. So one is um, we typically uh, a Maori population, the Pacifica population tend to be much younger, but they're also more subject to certain kinds of health issues, and they there's also a very high regional concentration of ethnicity in New Zealand. So separating out those things mm -hmm. needs a bit of thinking, I think. Yeah, but I would I would argue that's probably one of the things. Right. There's nothing intrinsic as to why, if you live in a rural area versus an urban area, why intrinsically one one group should be healthier or not healthier mm. than another. Mm. But when you add in these other factors, mm. it becomes more apparent. So, so Linda, what are some of the things that we can do to enhance regional well-being? We were talking there about health as a, as a factor, and we're mm. also talking about how um, you're... Uh, the, the shape of regions and the differences between regions have changed over time. Mm. Um, I'm interested in looking forward and thinking mm. about then what are some of the things that we can do to maybe reduce these disparities going forward mm. and enhance well-being either in individual regions or, or overall across yeah. New Zealand. Well, you know, I think it's easy to point the finger at government and say, oh, government should do more, isn't it? But actually, it can't just be government. It has to be a conversation and a partnership um, that extends from government through to organisations, companies, whatever it is, uh, and right down to individuals, actually. And, you know, I think Philip's already talked about the fact that people are, are pretty fundamental to all of this. So you, you can't just sort of look at it in the abstract and say, um, we're going to, you know, invest in more technology, even though that might be quite useful, and then expect um, well-being to similarly improve uh, through some sort of, you know, government-led investment in, in some sort of initiative. That's, that's not going to be how it uh, happens. People are the base ingredient of well-being. Most people would accept that. Um, and people can care about a whole range of different things, and it's not just their material circumstances. In fact, material circumstances may may not even be in the top three for some people in terms of what really drives their their well-being. So, yes, it's it's government and governance. Uh, yes, it's um, things like companies investing in technology or other things that they can do. Um, and it's really just having a conversation, I think, uh, amongst people and taking it down to that individual level that will make the difference. We're basically um, attempting to focus on well-being here. And we haven't asked ourselves what well-being means. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and we answer this question in, in academic circles at least and increasingly in policy circles by applying the Cantrell ladder 
to individuals and we basically asked people to say think of the worst possible life for you and rate that zero and then think of the best possible life for you and rate that 10 and imagine you're on a ladder and the 10s at the top and the zeros at the bottom where would you place yourself and um, those answers range from one to right through to 10 um, depending on who you ask the valuable thing about that cantrell ladder is that it comes from the individual's reflection on their own life. It uses no exterior benchmarks. It uses their own individual appreciation of what life should be like and what it's like. So it's a very democratic measure. So I think the question is, if you look at, or take big cities as, a, as, a, as an example, why do we get such a wide variety of well-being distributions in big cities? And it's certainly correlated with income and other things like that. But the well-being that people are talking about when they think about the cancel ladder has to do with their relationships with their family, their community, um, their degree to which their aspirations are being uh, fulfilled, whether the future looks bleak, and a whole lot of very personal things like that. And so when we think about how we structure regions so that people can move further up that ladder we've got to think of how different people different types of individuals are functioning in those cities now to go back to the idea of the growth of the service economy and the, the increase in incomes that it raises and the correlated fact that we're bringing in more and more lower income people to do the personal services What's happening in our big cities is that, and Wellington is a classic example as I look out the window, is the uh, basic gentrification of the inner city. Those that have money are well paid, are purchasing properties nearby, um, enjoying a wonderful environment, walking to work and so on and so forth. You look at the people who are doing uh, the cleaning, who are doing the potholes in the streets, who are looking after the elderly, and all these things, they're not living in the inner city. They're traveling 20, 30, 40, sometimes hour or more a day from way up north every day, which means less time with their families, and often they're doing part-time jobs as well. Now, those sorts of conditions are not leading to the kind of life that they would aspire to. So there are structural forces within the economy which are bringing us all together, but they're also structuring us spatially mm -hmm. in ways that disadvantage certain groups and greatly advantage others. I think it's these sorts of things that we need to look at when we're looking at well-being, actually. And so that raises issues about planning, urban planning, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, 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 and basically making life easier for certain people, mm -hmm. for sure. So the focus on well-being, I think, is absolutely critical because it, it, it raises the scope of what we're talking about. And so when, when we talk about regional well-being, we're putting, we're putting a geographic lens on well-being. Are there other kinds of communities that are useful to think about uh, when, when we're looking at well-being that, that help us to better understand um, well-being as it is today and opportunities for growing well-being in the future? Yes, as, as a geographer, I'm very conscious that um, of the fact that as geographers we talk about, not about geography, but geographies, plural. And this is a recognition that we all live in a multi-layered, multi-scaled context, all right? So some of the things that are most important to our well-being are those that are closest. 
in particular our family um, and then not necessarily the neighborhood because it depends on what kind of lifestyle you have as to whether your neighborhood is actually important for you or not it may be your activity community who you swim with who you run with who you play bridge with that's actually important and that that will be local but it won't necessarily be right next door so the kinds of the communities that matter really depend a lot on your stage in your life cycle your ability to be mobile and your range of interests and possibly right high up there is your the hours you have to actually devote to those things so i think community and what community is relevant is very dependent on the attributes of the individual yeah mm. so that's that interplay between your geographies communities and individuals mm. which mm. is really giving rise to people's sense of well-being mm. Mm. I, mean, I think one thing that um, the Stats New Zealand do every few years is a use of time survey. Yes, they do. And I think it's only um, run every five years or so because it's quite an expensive exercise to do. But I think you know the next one I think is due fairly soon, and it will be very um, interesting I think to see perhaps how things have changed in terms of people's use of time, but also their regional differences. You know whether you do actually see regional differences in people's use of time, and as Philip points out, perhaps differences mm. between um, more urbanised communities and and more rural or provincial communities. Yeah, we we tend when we talk about regions in New Zealand and regional issues to be we look at the map, which is grossly misleading, <laughs> I say as a geographer, uh, because the map is based on land area. The real map, the map that really matters, is, is a map that's reconfigured on the basis of population. And that kind of map looks incredibly different. You get big chunks of Auckland, obviously, than Wellington. And I mean, we're 80% urbanised. Our, our thinking about regions is often rural, urban, things like that. But the, increasingly, the, the regions that matters is what's going on in those big cities. Mm. This, is, this, this is where I think our thinking needs to shift. So, Linda, you, you mentioned before that um, it's not just about government suddenly deciding that we're going to increase well-being. Um, are, are regions and communities set up to be able to improve their own well-being? Uh, or, or do they need some sort of external mm. stimulus or catalyst to, to get Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. If you consider local government, for example, so we seem to have this never-ending conversation that goes in well, cycles or circles almost around what is the role of local government. And so there, there seems to be this feeling that um, amongst many people that local government should sort of stick to its knitting and just deliver, you know, pipes and roads and that sort of thing and, and has no further role. But if that's the case and, and we're just, you know, uh, ring-fencing local government, what who, who is it that actually does play a role in considering how communities operate, how people engage with each other, um, who who does make decisions that impact on, on well-being right down to sort of a, a community or even household level? Um, and I'm not sure that we really have an answer to that. So it's just sort of we're just relying on on um, organic, you know, uh, development of, of communities of interest for people to come together. And yet, in our daily lives, that are getting so busy, particularly in urban environments, as Philip's talked about, you know, the travel time impost that a lot of people have. Do we have that time still to be having those conversations? Uh, perhaps they used to happen naturally. Uh, I'm not convinced that there is 
a nat particularly natural forum for people to think about uh, in an organised way how our lives can be improved. Um, and that's, that's a real challenge, I feel, because it's certainly not the role of central government. I don't think, you know, you, you do have to have a pretty localised view of what matters to people. And that's, that's really the point, I guess, that we're making in this article, is to say that local does matter. You know, and it shouldn't be Wellington trying, um, but the, you know, some bureaucrats in Wellington trying to make it, make it up for the whole of New Zealand because we're going to get it wrong if that's, that's how it is. Yeah, I think there's some really important points there about, first of all, who's involved in the decision making on council at the moment? And how well um, are the various groups represented? Um, they could be highly represented, well represented in many communities. Uh, when this presumably some additional money is going to come through as a result of the four well-being, such a change in the Local Government Act, it's probably not going to be a lot. <laughs> so to a large extent, it's going to be a case of reconfiguring the existing budget rather than having a surplus that um, can go to new groups. So the present power configurations within councils um, is, going to, is an important issue because I think that's going to determine the way the funds are distributed. So maybe the four well-beings is going to shake this up a little bit. I don't know, actually. I would love to see some studies of what happens between now and, say, five years' time, just to see what goes on as a result of this. Whether we know through the debates uh, when the bill was going through the the, the public discussions um, that, that certain people in certain regions, namely the ratepayers, who don't particularly want to see their their funds spent in, a, in in other ways than they would like, they certainly don't want to have any more. Uh, of their rates, that they don't want their rates rise, rising. Mm. Um, particularly for groups perhaps that they don't feel part of. Mm. Um, so there's going to be a bit of a tussle, I think, in a number of councils um, as a result of this. There's a great cultural <coughs> reluctance, I think, in New Zealand amongst councils anyway to borrow as well. So, you know, it seems yeah. to be, yeah. whether, whether yeah. it's <laughs> actually true or not that many councils are at the kind of the limits of their borrowing capacity. Mm. Um, I haven't done the analysis on that, but there's certainly this sort of cultural reluctance mm. that mm. says mm. no borrowing is bad and we should just be funding everything as we go along, mm. which means that you know you potentially have intergenerational impacts because um, you know even even the basic things like water um, aren't necessarily getting the investment that they need. Um, because, you know, particularly in areas where you've got declining populations, there isn't the, the funding or revenue. Um, and you mentioned, you know, is there any additional funding coming? Well, you know, central government's never really funded local government, apart from a bit of money going into to roads. Mm. Uh, it all comes from self-funding, mm. from rates mm. and, and other levies and so on. So, you know, is, are we seeing a future where central government actually does work um, and, and put more funding into to local mm. priorities. Um, that would be quite a change for New Zealand. I think one of the, the interesting conversations that are going to occur as a result of this, uh, conversations which Stats New Zealand has begun when it's been talking to communities around the country, what matters for your well-being? And if communities start having this question, then ultimately it comes back to the individual and people will ask themselves, if I had uh, some extra money, where would I put it in my life in order to raise my well-being? 
That's an interesting question for people to ask, actually, and I'm not sure how I would answer it. Mm. I think upon reflection, we'd all find answers to it. But it's almost that conversation we have to have with ourselves to mm. begin with. Uh, because at the end of the day, communities are made up of individuals, and it's their personal well-being uh, that, that is ultimately matters, recognising the fact that their relationship with their community is a big factor in that. Mm. So... The, the whole process of opening up the well-being debate, I think, does make people, or I would like to think it, it causes people to reflect on their own life. Yeah, I, I think it's, a, it's an absolutely fascinating question. Uh, you have uh, these different communities up and, up and down the country defined by the geographies and, and uh, they will each have different preferences. Uh, your individuals have their own preferences, but as communities, they might end up having different preferences in terms of where any additional funding should mm. go. Mm. Um, you may be in protection of their natural environment that's around them. Yeah. They might derive a lot of well-being from that. Mm. Some of them might derive more well-being from additional services that are provided. Some of them may derive more well-being not by giving the money to the local government to work out what to do with it, but actually by spending it themselves uh, and directing it towards mm. their own preferences, but um, you all, all of those things will reflect uh, the preferences and the trade-offs that exist within each of those individual communities. One of the things, though, I find quite intriguing is that, you know, while we might be talking about, well, money can only be used once, I can, I can either use it for this or use it for that, um, well-being you get to use many times over. If, if, if I can enhance Linda's well-being, then my well-being may well increase as well. That's a very, very important point, uh, and one of the fundamental differences between thinking about income and thinking about well-being is that ultimately, with a fixed budget or fixed resources, if you're going to raise my well-being, it has to come from you. Mm. <laughs> um, that's not the case of well-being. In fact, it's the reverse. If your well-being gets enhanced for whatever reason, then I benefit. You are a happier person, you're a more generous person, you're more likely to give your time. And that has a multiplier effect. It almost has an endogenous growth effect, which it ought to be, and, and has been shown to be elsewhere, a very positive thing. And so I think that's that, that um, non-zero-sum game nature of, of well-being is something that we need to work on and see how we can actually leverage it. Yep. Uh, I think I think it's uh, it's an intriguing prospect and and uh, I think a, a challenge that we can lay down in terms of how do we create that abundance of of well-being. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's about all we've got time for today. I'd just like to thank our two guests, uh, Linda Mead and Philip Morrison, again. Uh, for your time today. I do encourage you to check out the article we've discussed and indeed the whole series on our Deloitte.co.nz website. Why not share your thoughts on what we discussed today and on well-being more generally with us on Twitter at DeloitteNZ or on LinkedIn. Don't forget the hashtag StateOfTheStateNZ. Thanks for listening.